This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. Welcome to Women at Work in our weekly conversation about how we can get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. New episodes of Women at Work premiere on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern, and our entire back catalog is available 24-7 via podcast. Just search on Women at Work and Laura Zarrow wherever you get yours. And please be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle, at SXMBusiness. Today, I have an amazing guest. This is a woman I met in the process of developing the Wharton People Analytics Conference. And after I got a load of what she does, I just had to have her on the show because I needed to learn more from her. She's a social scientist who specializes in complexity, and she is as complex and interesting as all the things she studies. Andrea Jones-Roy, she's the Director of Undergraduate Studies at the NYU Center for Data Science, an organizational consultant, a stand-up comedian, and and a circus artist who has delighted audiences around the world. In her academic and consulting work and that amazing presentation at our conference, she teaches us how to think about data, how to understand its power and its limitations, and how to question it in our pursuit of new and meaningful insights, especially where diversity, equity, and inclusion are concerned. Brilliant, original, artful in all she does, I'm so excited to welcome her to the show. So Andrea, thanks for joining us on Women at Work. Well, thank you for having me. And that is the most thorough introduction I've ever been given. So thank you for that. (laughs) This is your life tour. (laughs) Okay, so speaking of this is your life. Yes. Way back in the day, you know, when you were a young girl and people would ask you those questions, what do you want to be when you grow up? Did you say, I'm going to be everything? You know, close. Uh, Well, when I was in, uh, I'm going to tell you more than you want. When I was in third grade, I thought I was going to be a marine biologist. And then I was afraid of the shark cages. So that failed. Then I was very into being an actor. But then when uh, my freshman year of college, they had us all sit down and introduce ourselves. And they said, everyone say what you think you're going to major in. And I said, I'm Andrea and I'm going to major in everything. So you are really on the nose. Actually, You're kidding, really? Yeah, no, that's exactly what happened. Okay, so and I'm not a marine biologist. That totally fell apart. <laughs> okay, so majoring in everything is both expensive and time-consuming. In, yes, and so eventually you chose a, a, at least an academic path. As you were going through school, were you also a performer, a gymnast? Like, how did you get to be all these things at once? You know, it is. You were right about the expensive and time-consuming, and I really spent most of my life honestly, until fairly recently, thinking I needed to pick a path and being tortured about which path to choose. Was I going to go down the social science route? Was I going to go down the, I was, I was a dancer growing up. Was I going to do that? Was I going to perform, et cetera, et cetera. I was very into comedy for a very long time. And I basically, it wasn't until I was in grad school and had tortured myself for most of my twenties that I said, you know what? I'm actually not going to choose. I'm done trying to choose. And so I said, all right, this is what we're doing. And so I went for all of the things and it's been a bit of a relief ever since, but I still, you know, I'm like, well, I'm around my academic friends and I think I really should focus on academics. And then I'll be around my stand-up friends and be like, you know what? I need to go all in on stand-up. So it's not like I've cured myself, but I spent a long time trying to choose. And it was, it was a whole breakthrough when I decided not to. Okay, so I, I want to explore this because yeah. in each of the things that you do, 
there are cultures in those worlds that yeah. say this is the only thing you do. And most yes. of the people who are in them are in them because that's the only thing they can imagine doing. Yes. And I'm very jealous of all those people, not to get too uh, psychology couch too fast, but I've always wanted to be hyper. I've always admired people who are just hyper focused on something. They're awesome at the thing that they do. They've been figure skating since they were three, you know, the all of those sort of Olympian stories that you hear where it's just like, right. this is what I've always loved and this is what I'm best at. And I just always felt like a, what is it? The, the square peg and there were a lot of round holes and I never quite fit in it, but there were some I could sort of jam myself into. And those are the ones you named in the opening. <laughs> right, where I think the yeah. reality is, is that you're not a, you're not square or round. You're one of those multi-pronged adapters <laughs> yeah, that can like put good. equal power into multiple places. That's a better analogy. I thought you were going to say Play-Doh where you can kind of jam in silly putty into, and I was like, oh, okay. But yeah, multiple power adapters. I like that international feel. Yes. So, um, I want to talk first about your academic realm, because yes. I think when we think about our listeners and women who are in the workplace, we, there's so, there's so many ways you're a role model and that you're defying a lot of odds. It's say in many ways, you're a polymath, but you actually work it, it not, but you're a polymath and you really engage at a high level in all three of these things. What kind of crap do you get from your <laughs> colleagues because you're not doing only one thing? Are yeah. they cool with this? Do they know about this? It, it's a very good question. And crap is the right word for some circumstances. I am very fortunate that right now my colleagues are extremely welcoming and encouraging. And I really lucked out in my current position. And uh, so shout out to the Center for Data Science at NYU. However, yes, that was here. not always the case. So when I was in graduate school, I went straight to grad school, my PhD program at University of Michigan from undergrad. And that was one of those times where I thought, all right, that was fun. I was a dance minor in college and it was just sort of kept me going. Technically, I should not have earned the dance minor because I never took anatomy for dancers. Oh, to this day, I don't know what phones or what, right? But they, <laughs> but I never went to the registrar and said, actually, I'm not a minor. And the old ladies who ran the registrar, they were all 85 plus and they never caught anyway. So I shouldn't have a dance minor, but I do no big deal. Okay. Now they're going to call me if they hear this on the radio, Connecticut college is going to be like, actually, we need that degree back. Um, but then I went to grad school and thought, okay, now I'm really going to focus and I'm going to be a, a political scientist and all this is going to happen. And within two years, I had joined the Michigan synchronized swimming team and that kept me alive. And then I did yoga and then I did dance. And then I actually did figure skating for a while. And then I finally found this place called the Detroit Fly House, which was a circus warehouse in Detroit. And I go through all of that to say that actually, even then my classmates were pretty supportive, but I didn't really tell my professors about it. But my classmates were very good sports. They would come to my synchronized swimming meets. Like it was me and a bunch of undergrads, you know, I was right. really intense. But then I got a postdoc at Carnegie Mellon and I was pulled aside. I was there for two years. I was pulled aside early on, like in the first month of the, the first semester I was there. It was my first time ever teaching. It was, you know, it was stressful, right? And my director of where I was, where my postdoc was said, you know, Andrea, just so that you know, some people in the department didn't want to hire you because we saw your posts, your Facebook posts, and we saw that you were hanging from a trapeze and doing all these things. And this was, I was still very recreational. I was not doing this professionally. It was literally every Sunday, it was my dose of sanity in the midst of dissertation writing. And he said, we saw those posts and a lot of people thought you weren't serious. So we almost didn't hire you. 
And to this day, I'm like, why did you tell me that? Okay, fine. And he said, so I'm telling you, well, here's why he told me this was, so we just want to make sure that while you're here, you're going to be serious about this. And I was really upset about that because, you know, it's a, it's a relatively ridiculous sport or, or pastime for sure. And I'm hanging upside down and doing all this weird stuff. But I was thinking to myself, you know, what if I was a marathon runner or what if I was a a poker champion or something a little bit or a chess champion? Or what if I had kids that I was spending every weekend with rather than hanging from a thing with a bunch of other Detroiters, right? Okay. So I want to ask a question though. Please. I I know I just interrupted you. No, go for it. I want to make, I want to dive into what the post included because I think it's germane to what you're talking about. Yeah. So in the things that you have on your website now, um, your and I call it, and as a circus performer, I think of it as circus art. You are mm-hmm. doing this at a, in a very artful way, very sophisticated, very adult, very mm-hmm. sexual. To what degree was that the case with these Facebook postings? Is the lack of seriousness that you were hanging upside down or you were hanging upside down and lots of parts of your body were showing? It's actually, it was, none of it was sexy. It was okay. me in sweatpants, t-shirts, hanging upside down. It was very much like what you would wear to a yoga class, you know, a casual yoga and class. And this was on Facebook, not LinkedIn, right? It was on Facebook. And it was the the way that this place made kind of got free advertising. And it was a great pr- process. And they're run by really nice people. Really recommend it if you're in the area. Um, is they had someone named Paul who was their kind of in-house photographer. And so these were just classes. It wasn't shows. It wasn't anything. We were just practicing. And if you did a fun pose, you know, you're hanging from one knee or you're doing a split in the silks or something like that, he would snap a photo of you smiling and friends around you cheering. And they would do that for everyone so that then when they tagged you in it, all my friends would say, wow, where are you doing that awesome stuff? I want to check it out too. That was their marketing model, basically. Okay. So this was very G-rated. I mean, this was, you know, at one point there was a picture of us, you know, making a human, like a pyramid for fun. You know, it was very childish. So this was none of the, I'm going to put it in quotes because it makes me uncomfortable, but the quote, sexy stuff you saw later, that was way later. So these were beyond PG. So totally tame. And in yeah. what is the the personal life space of Facebook and they were still questioning your seriousness? Yes. And at the time, I will say I made the deliberate choice to not put my Facebook profile on private or anything like that at that time. So a lot of my friends, when they were going on the job market, purposely shut down their Facebook for those sorts of reasons. Even if it's a picture of you drinking with your friends, you don't want your potential employer to see that. I didn't do that. I wasn't really on the market at the time. It was kind of a one-off thing, but I purposely didn't do it because I was like, this is who I am and I'm not going to hide blah, blah, blah. And that was a really bad introduction. I felt very uncomfortable for the time that I was there, uh, largely for that reason. But the other reason I was uncomfortable was that I had every intention of going back to Detroit once a week, sometimes twice a week to continue practicing. At that time, Pittsburgh did not have much of an aerial or circus scene. They've grown since. Um, and I looked, I took some gymnastics and I did some, some ballet locally. The Pittsburgh ballet is really great. But I really, that, that trapeze is the one thing that got me through grad school. I went through, I struggled in grad school, mental health. It, was, it, it kept me going. And I was like, I'm not going to give that up. It was a four and a half hour drive from Pittsburgh to Detroit. And I did it every weekend and sometimes once in, during the week. And it was, I was sleeping on the Ohio Turnpike. It was very messy, right? I would get out of class at, in Pittsburgh at 5 p.m., jump into my car, 
sprint to Detroit, change into my circus clothes, do all that, you know, sleep somewhere ridiculous and then drive back the next day and teach again. Like it was pretty intense. And the whole time I did it undercover because I didn't want my colleagues at Carnegie Mellon to know that I was doing that. And over those two years, I started upping my game even more and going to New York because there was great training in New York. And so I started going to New York. I even got stranded in New York during Hurricane Sandy and couldn't come back to teach. So I had to make up this whole thing about being sick. I would look up the weather in Pittsburgh and email my boss and say, oh, I hope you're staying dry. You know, and I'm in bone dry New York. <laughs> so it was two years of lying, basically. And I don't think they're going to- Largely because you got this message coming in yeah. that this other part of you was yeah. not, not only not encouraged, but actively discouraged. And it would question their perception of your seriousness. Yeah. Yeah. And until that time, I, you know, in grad school, I met everyone and we were all grad students. And it was sort of gradually that I thought, you know, oh, I still feel the need to move around. And so I had already become friends with my peers in grad school as a grad student. And so then I said, oh, by the way, I'm performing in this synchronized swimming thing. And they thought it was a riot, you know, so they were very supportive and they weren't really colleagues. So, but they knew me as a, as a, a classmate first. Whereas I think what happened at Carnegie Mellon is a few people knew me and that's how I was in the running for this position. And then a bunch of other people looked me up and said, well, who's this? We're a very elite whatever. And we're like, well, she's spending all her time hanging upside down in Detroit. No, thank you. So yeah. for those of you who are either in Detroit hanging upside down yeah. or just tuned in, <laughs> yeah. um, this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM channel 132. And I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. That voice that you hear is Andrea Jones-Roy. She is the Director of Undergraduate Studies at the NYU Center for Data Scientists, at, at, for Data Science, as well as an accomplished stand-up comedian and circus artist. And we're talking about all the ways that she, like, how did she become all these things? So Andrea, as you're talking about this, there are a couple little nuggets that you've shared that I want to back up and explore because they feel important to me. Okay. One is that um, you mentioned that this all started while you, like, at, you pursued dance while you were at Connecticut College, you had a minor in dance. You dropped the Pittsburgh Ballet, not a bad place. It's wonderful. Yeah. Great yeah. teachers. This is not so there's, I want to explore the arc here between the things that we do to be well rounded, healthy people, you know, that sports and colleges can encourage, the arts are encouraged as ways of becoming well rounded people. There's a difference here, though, that I'm hearing about a drive to perform at a very high level. That you didn't just dance, you minored in dance. You didn't just find ballet classes. You went to the Pittsburgh Ballet. <laughs> you didn't just find a way to continue to grow as an acrobat or circus performer. You were driving four and a half hours to Detroit from Pittsburgh. Right. So talk to me about drive and ambition, where this boils up in you and, and how you wrestle with this. Because you're not just doing everything, you're doing everything at a very high level. Mm. Well, that's... You're flattering me because I always feel as we started this conversation and maybe this, well, I won't speculate, but I feel always that I'm doing each, you know, not as well as I could be, but, but that's a good question. I'm going to quote, paraphrase Philip Glass in this. It's totally not, I don't want to get credit for this idea, but it's a beautiful idea. I went to a thing once in Brooklyn where he and uh, Paul Simon had a conversation about music and they asked each other questions. And I was a big fan of both of these people. And uh, I don't, I'm, I'm not very big on, I don't know much about music. So these are very non edgy choices, but okay. And, <laughs> and Paul Simon said, Philip Glass, you were an accomplished classical musician. Why did you get into this weird new age 
new whatever modern music. And Philip Glass said something to the effect that burned into my brain. He said, well, I didn't do it because I wanted to. I did it out of desperation. And I don't ever feel like I've had drive. I feel like I've had sprinting either away from something else, maybe in an unhealthy way, or just like, like a churning equilibrium where I just don't feel like myself if I don't do it. So it's not like, oh, I should, or I aspire to be the best, or I am not the best, but it's always just like, I've just sort of felt like a push inside that has made me never question that part of me. And right, because you were using words before, like it kept me alive. Yeah, it really did. And so one of the big things that I have struggled with in academia is I didn't really know, you know, we talk a lot about imposter syndrome and what that means. And I don't want to sort of over overgeneralize into that, but I always, I didn't want to become a scientist. I grew up as someone who was not, I did not excel in the maths and the sciences and all of that. It was not, it didn't come naturally to me. I kind of convinced myself, I'm not a math person, like one of those, right? And in college, I took a bunch of international relations courses and I really liked them, okay. And I went to a political science PhD program thinking I was gonna write big essays on the nature of war and peace and solve the fundamental paradox of whatever, right? And then I got there and it turned out it was mostly math and mostly hypothesis testing. And I thought, what the heck is this? And so I was very reluctant to embrace the science side of it. And I always felt from the beginning, like, you know, the coursework, I, I kind of, I'm a good student, quote unquote, in that I, I like the cadence of homeworks and tests and whatever. And so that was no problem. But when it came to doing my own research, I really felt like this wasn't me. And it's been a lot of work to talk myself into, because as you know, I'm still in academia, though I've wandered in and out a few times. And so a lot of times I felt like I was pretending in the science world and the circus was where I was myself, which is usually not it's usually the reverse for my colleagues <laughs> right. who are accomplished scientists and, you know, are marathoners for their, their mental health or whatever. Like, I always felt like, oh, this is where I'm myself was when I was hanging from a thing. When you're performing. <laughs> yeah. So how much of that, that the way that you felt at home there was yeah. about being in motion and mm. artistry, physicality, the physical challenge, the audience? What are, how do those ingredients line up in your own cocktail? Of this. Yeah, those that was a huge part of it. So yeah, it wasn't like I was disappearing and reading a book, which probably be better off if that's what I focused on. <laughs> right. I don't, I don't think anything's wrong. So don't apologize yeah, fair, for it. Fair. Yeah. But no, it was very, uh, it's very important for me that it to be physical. I, I was fortunate that my parents were very big on, you know, activities and exercise when we were growing up. Um, and I actually came to dance late in life. I didn't start until high school, which is crazy late. In the, and, in the world of serious dance, that is late. Oh yeah. Were you yeah. doing gymnastics before then? No, I did swimming and track and cross country. Okay. I tried soccer for a half second. I'm horrible at all sports involving throwing and catching and balls and none of it. I can't. So, so I ran and swam by myself. <laughs> and then okay. eventually I admitted that dance was what I really wanted to do. And so it was ridiculous. I was in high school and I was taking classes with fifth graders and sixth graders and it's creepy almost. Uh, but then, you know, I, I worked really hard. And so I became, you know, I didn't catch up. I, I have an imposter syndrome there as well. Um, where was I going with all of this? I don't know. Oh, so, the, mo the movement. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have a lot of anxiety and depression in my brain. And so movement forces me out of that. And I also feel that circus in particular spoke to me. So I flitted between a lot of different stuff. So I always liked performing dance, but I also did all these other weird things. I did some gymnastics, not so great at it, but circus is awesome. 
for me in particular, because it requires a lot of upper body strength. And for some reason, and we can get into gender here if we want to, that felt extra empowering to me. And okay. it really, if you do trapeze, you're not sitting there doing pull-ups, I should be, but I'm not. <sighs> it just naturally forces you, like it would bulk up my arms and my um, like kind of back, my lats and stuff. Like you just kind of get a, and it just was very empowering to me. And so I would be in grad school feeling very insecure and very dumb and not good enough. And at least I had this like kind of physical form underneath where I felt a tiny bit like a superhero. And that kept me going in a weird way. Okay, I can relate to this in yep. ways very much later in life, having grown up in the arts and arrived at business school as a fully formed adult or mm. mostly formed adult. Um, <laughs> I started running in my 40s and wow. I had always been quantifiably non-athletic, but there was something enormously empowering about taking on increasingly substantial challenges mm -hmm. and the relationship between me and my body to meet those challenges. But with the exception of running in a pack of 30,000 people in the Philadelphia Marathon, it was largely a solitary pursuit. Hmm. It was, and it was actually a way that I spent time alone grappling with myself. So I, part of it I can relate to, but fundamentally being a circus performer means performing for an audience. So talk yeah. to me about that relationship of being, being there to entertain each other people and being seen and observed as right. part of the point. Right. So the other piece of this, and I'm so glad you brought that up about being a, it being a solitary thing versus a group thing. And that's very cool. You've done the Philadelphia marathon. Have you done the New York marathon? No, I oh. gave up after two Phillies. It was well, it was enough for me. That's plenty. That's two more than I've done. So well done. I I grew up thinking, oh, I'm gonna have to run a marathon one day, and just thinking that I had that in my head. And then one day I was like, no, I don't. I don't have to. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to. So <laughs> that and <laughs> which is thought, its own liberating thing. Yeah. And I thought that about Everest. I was like, one day I'm gonna have to climb Everest. And then I said, no, I don't. Anyway, anyway. Um, so the performing came a bit later in circus, but I had always loved performing growing up. I did a lot of acting and musical theater. And so I'm a horrible singer, but I like the camaraderie of it all. And in grad school, one of the other things I got into was improv comedy. I spent a little bit of time in grad school on the East Coast and then sort of commuting back and forth to do improv at Upright Citizens Brigade in New York. And I had a team there and we traveled and I did improv. Yeah, this isn't like yeah. improv at summer camp. You went to the yeah, Upright Citizens Brigade. I'm, if I'm involved in something, I tend to get very obsessive about it. Uh, so that was what that looked like. And I had a ton of Delta Sky Miles, no big deal. It was Northwest Airlines at the time. That's how long ago this was. Anyway, uh, I'm going back and forth and UCB and improv was so great. So I really wanted to do comedy. I was afraid of stand-up, So I was like, I'll do improv as a way in. And what I loved most about it was A, there's a lot of performing and B, you're working with others. And academia is increasingly collaborative, but not always. And in political science and in the data science world that I am in, I don't have a lot of co-authors. So it's very solitary. So in grad school it was very solitary. And so it was working with others and putting together something that was like unplanned and spontaneous and magical was something that really appealed to me. And it all felt like the opposite of academia, which is we're going to plan everything out. We're going to write a proposal. We're going to do it by ourselves. We're going to sit in a room and we're going to think about how bad we are at what we're doing. Whereas the other <laughs> half, this was so celebratory. So for circus, I didn't perform. I was actually very nervous about performing circus. I was afraid I would, I would, you know, I did finally start performing at the end, but all of it, I switched from amateur to professional circus performer when I moved to China. 
to be a professor at NYU Shanghai. So I was at Carnegie Mellon for two years. I actually had the third year on my postdoc left and NYU Shanghai invited me to be a postdoc there and then a professor. And I thought, you know what? I'm gonna go to Shanghai. Uh, I study Chinese politics, so it made sense. And I was like, I'm gonna go. And also there's no circus in China for adults. There's circus for people who were born in a split when they were, you know, and, and grew up in the circus. China has a wonderful circus uh, history and culture of circus and tradition of circus. And they're incredible athletes. And it's like, it's like me trying to be an Olympic gymnast now. Like, it's just not gonna happen, right? It just okay. can't. And so I was like, this is perfect. There's no like adult recreation circus over there. And so I even looked it up to make sure. And I, I remember talking to my dad about this, this, deciding whether or not to go to China. And honestly, one of the reasons was I was like, finally, I'm gonna focus on academia. I'm gonna go all the way to China so that I can't drive to Detroit and drive to New York and I can actually focus on my career. And I'm 31 at this time, right? Okay. And I finally need to focus. So I moved to China to be a real academic. That's what I thought it would take because literally you're across the world. oceans between you and your circus life. 100%. My last summer before I moved to China, I actually lived in a circus collective in Brooklyn. It's since been demolished and replaced by Vice News. Uh, but at the time <laughs> it was an illegal like squatting ground where 11 of us were housed in these little shoe boxes and there was a circus place in the front. So I wake up in the morning and hang from silks and we'd have classes, but then I just lived at the circus for the summer. And I literally remember the last day I did some trapeze and I looked at the calluses on my hand and I said, okay, I'm done. That's the end of circus. And I went to China. I'm in China for two weeks. I started to look into, there's an improv team there. And I found a gymnastics coach there who taught foreigners. And that was kind of fun. And then all of a sudden there were all these ads in timeout Shanghai for a brand new circus themed nightclub that was opening on the Bund area of downtown Shanghai, which is like the river area. It's beautiful, right? It's the big famous area. Now, yeah. You had just tried to move to China, not just to do this awesome thing in your academic career of teaching at um, in the NYU program in Shanghai, but also separating yourself from your circus life. Moving right. on. These First silly question, distractions, yeah. Why? Because you really, did you, were you done with it in your heart or were you thinking this is bad for me? I was not at all done with it. I was devastated to leave it, but I was thinking I'll never be a real successful academic if I keep spending all my time hanging from stuff, <laughs> basically. <laughs> and spending all my time, I mean, especially because I was living somewhere far away where it was, you know, let's see, 16 hours a week in a car that I should have been spending on research, you know, as a junior academic. Okay. So I want to probe this a little bit yeah. because this issue of focus and intensity comes up in so many of our professional lives mm. of um, messages that we get overt or implied that we should be all in, yeah. that, you know, um, we should be working 24 seven on one thing, what it means to be excellent and what it means and what's required of us to advance in a chosen profession. So how much of this pressure, I'm reading it as pressure, was coming from the people around you and how much of it was from the part of you that wanted to be excellent at what you were doing? Almost all external, if I'm okay. being honest, I think. It was, I mean, and apart from the, the moment where, you know, that person sat me down and said, you know, we didn't take you seriously, et cetera. No one was really being overt about it. Here and there, there'd be snide comments. I once 
presented poetry at a poetry thing. And one professor who was there said, you know, what if you were writing your dissertation instead? I was like, all right, you know? So I got little kind of side passive aggressive and he was just trying to be supportive, whatever. Um, but it was, it was much more in the ether. Everyone I talked to was working all the time. Everyone was, you know, I was about to be a junior professor and the famously all you do is your research. And I just knew that you, you couldn't be excellent without going all in, but it really, I'm sad to say this, a bit ashamed, I have to say, to say it was less about, ah, I'm gonna be the best scientist there ever was, and more like, I need to play this game right. And I'm tired mm -hmm. of being scattered. And I wanna see, basically, and I said this to my, my father, I said, let me just see how it is for a year and give academia the, the old college try. There's some good puns in it there, right? <laughs> And then I'll know if this is the right path for me. Because the other thing that was going on was I was still ambivalent about whether being an academic or at least a full-time academic was the right path for me either. And I was like, well, I've never really given it a full chance. So let me s literally separate myself by oceans from my distractions, go to China where I don't know anybody and be 100% all in on academia and see how I like it. That presuming that it's the atmosphere you're in that's going to make that possible for you right. as opposed to the atmosphere inside of you. Right, right. I basically was doing the thing where, you know, you go on vacation to get away from all your problems and then you land there and you think, oh, my problems are still here. It was, I think it I was, was hoping Tennessee. China would drown it all out. <laughs> I think it was Tennessee Williams who said we could move, but then we'd all be the same people. We'd just be in a different place. Exactly. It was exactly that. Um, you know, in Shanghai, I don't know, have you been to Shanghai? It's no, awesome. I have not. Okay, I highly recommend it to anyone who's able to travel there safely. Of course, it's a complicated time right now, but it's an amazing city. It's massive. It makes New York City seem like a village. So I was deluding myself that I was really going to focus. Let me move to the biggest city in the world, depending on how you measure <laughs> metropolitan areas. Right. In a brand new, exciting place, in a country that is just the most, one of the most, you know, all countries are fascinating, but it was really on the rise. You know, this was 2013. And so I was ridiculous to think that that's where I would really get some work done. You know, I should have moved to a cabin, you know. <laughs> and, and also it seems like part of what was going on here is the other things that you were doing. We talked about this in the first half hour a little bit. We touched on it. There's a real drive to be excellent. You, when you go, you go all in. Yeah. It seems as if if you were doing a crappy job of writing poetry yeah. and you were only, you know, doing aerial exercises at the local Y, nobody would have cared. Right. But the perception that you were doing anything else with any level of seriousness got translated as right. you haven't picked the one thing that gets your primary focus. Right. And the people in my academic world, I think were looking out for my best interest if my best interest were all in on academia. You know, they were saying that this is how you make it is you look like this is your whole life and this is all that you care about. And, you know, we've, I'm, I'm sure you've talked on this show extensively about um, women academics who have kids who are seen as less mm -hmm. dedicated. I encounter that with colleagues and, and clients in the workplace, right? So it's a similar kind of thing where I don't know how much gender played a role, but just this idea of the odds are already small. If you're not going to really focus, how are you going to get anywhere? And so they were looking out for that. By the way, I wrote a great poem, I've since lost it, uh, about the prisoner's dilemma. So it wasn't even that unrelated. It was uh, from the perspective <laughs> of the prisoner. It was quite beautiful, I have to say. Okay, so that's bringing me actually to yeah. my next set of questions. Okay. When we discuss in the context of um, our multiple dimensions, 
often as mothers, as professionals, the idea is that each one makes us better at the other and that we shouldn't have to choose between the two, not just because this is part of how a lot of us live our lives, but because we learn from them. We grow in different ways. We get more interested, interesting. We understand things differently. Um, And We've given what I hope isn't just lip service to the notion that that should apply to other choices we make in our lives, not just work and motherhood. Like in your case, work and artistry. Right. And um, even as you're making a joke about, you know, Shanghai, depends on how you measure it. The social scientist in you is a very present part of who you are. How does your, the part, the artist part of you inform the scientist part Mm. of you? Yes. So a great question. And it's, it's indirect in a way in the sense that, well, two ways, I guess. One is the same. I imagine you tell me a similar sort of experience as when you, you know, could kind of spend some time on your own and go for a long run or something like that. It it recenters you. It reminds you, you know, academia, we are literally in our heads and typing all day long. And maybe, maybe there's a mouse, right. That really mixes it up. (laughs) But we're, we're very cerebral and not really aware of our body. So on the one hand, the artistic side, all my artistic endeavors, even stand up to an extent, are quite physical, right? And mm-hmm. so, so there's that element of just kind of putting me back in my body and anyone who is interested in exercise or does yoga or whatever knows how that feels. And it can refresh your brain. I mean, there's studies- In, in a New big York way, times, yeah. Yeah, all the time that are like, if you're thinking about something and you're stuck, go for a walk, right? So there's that aspect for sure. The other piece of it is it kind of just chills me out. Circus in particular and comedy are both rather ridiculous arts as well. I'm not playing classical music. I'm not doing, you know, Giselle ballet. I'm rolling around with colleague, with colleagues, you know, fellow circus performers with balloons and beds of nails and, and weird, crazy stuff, right? And being ridiculous and setting stuff on fire and comedy obviously is funny. So it just kind of reminds me to lighten up and to not take everything so seriously. And I feel very strongly that good science comes from enjoying the process of science. And some people naturally, there's many routes to good science. I don't wanna say that as a general, but many people I think who are full on scientists enjoy what they're doing and you get lost in your work and you're in the zone and it's a place of joy and creativity even as you're doing very rigorous science that maybe to the outsider doesn't look that creative. I think it is, right? I tend to get so wound up in do I belong here? I need this to be really good. Am I smart enough? And so the circus and the comedy help me play when I do science, because it reminds me that I can just enjoy things. And then I'm better at things when I enjoy them. And that's true for comedy. That's true for circus. And it's true for science. And science is the hardest place to remember that. For those of you who just tuned in, you're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio and Sirius XM Channel 132. And I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. That voice, that fascinating voice (laughs) is coming from Andrea Jones-Roy. She's a visiting associate professor at the NYU Center for Data Science and is the director of their undergraduate program. And in her spare time, um, which it sounds like is hard to find, but she does it no matter what. She's a stand-up comedian and circus performer. So Andrea, I want to... 
take what you're telling me and challenge it a little bit. And Please. part of this is going to reflect my own artistic biases. Great. Um, I think it was John Irving wrote, it's hard work and good art to make life not so serious. Mm, um, but that good. also, whether or not art is classical and formal, I take art making very seriously. And I think what you do is very artful and purposefully so. Um, having seen you perform as an academic. I'm not kidding. You got the highest ratings of any speaker at the <laughs> conference this year. I'm telling you folks, she knocked it out of the park and her presentation is on YouTube on the Wharton People Analytics playlist. Um, the part of why she knocked it out of the park, part of why it was so awesome, it wasn't just that you took this concept of how can we work with data in smart ways that doesn't have to be overly complicated, which was this totally refreshing notion in a world, like in a conference dedicated to high level of geekiness. But it was also that you delivered it with humor. Your timing was extraordinary. Your use of sound of image, of design. It was so artfully presented that it took complex concepts and made them really digestible. And to me, when you use artful elements to help people learn, that's a high art form. So I'm not buying that it's just about chilling you out. Yeah. It has gotta be infusing your work with yeah. other kinds of qualities. Mm. Yes, fair. All right. Well, I'm. we're on the radio so no one can see me blush as you say all those nice things. But um. Yeah. So, so how can I say this quickly? So I spent, you know, grad school in my twenties saying, yeah, circus keeps me sane. Comedy keeps me, yeah. Feet on the ground. It keeps me out of my head. You're right. That's a fair call out because then when I was in Shanghai, I basically did all of the things full time. So I got hired at this circus themed nightclub. I performed there four nights a week. At one point it was five nights a week, every week. And then I would teach during the day and I was doing comedy as well. I was doing improv and eventually got into stand-up. And so I was living the life I always wanted to live where I was able to do all three to the fullest extent that I wanted to. And part Did of that was- Did you ever sleep? Not really. Okay. <laughs> that was, it was a, not a sustainable life, but it was an extremely fun life. And it worked out just well enough where I tended to teach Monday, Wednesday, and circus tended to be Wednesday through Saturday, sometimes Sunday. Comedy was on Thursday, and then I'd go to circus afterwards. So I kind of always been a night owl, but it was rough. It was not healthy. But I was able to do all three pretty much to the fullest extent because the Shanghai community, it was a mix of expat and local Shanghai uh, citizens. And my Chinese got really good because I was one of the few who spoke both. And so that was fun. I learned how to say weird things like fishnet stockings and podium three, <laughs> as opposed to <laughs> hospital, you know, but, but those sorts of things. But I was doing all three to the fullest extent that I could in that particular community because the comedy scene was quite small. My university was still small. So I didn't have that feeling of like, oh, I'm not doing it all. I'm not doing it right. There's, a, there's more of a saga to it, but I eventually left my job as a tenure track professor at NYU Shanghai, in part because the circus closed. Uh, in part because I wanted to do more comedy and New York is one of the places where you do comedy and the Shanghai scene was awesome, but very small. And in part because I felt that just an academic life, I finally did in my third year in China, I did the full on academic life because the circus had closed and I was doing a little comedy, but not that much. And I was not happy. I really got isolated and I really, it was a dark time. And so I moved to New York with the only plan to merge those three together somehow. And so that's where I think your call out is on the nose. And thank you for saying that about my presentation because I hadn't really thought of it in that terms because now I kind of do it automatically.
but I do think I, I haven't figured it out perfectly, but I've been trying since I got back to New York in 2016 to blend the three because I think comedy is so useful at communicating anything. We see that with mm -hmm. political comedy. We see it with the daily show and late night, all of that SNL. Um, and we, you know, you remember, or I remember professors who make one joke a semester and you remember that joke, right? Yep. I remember these ridiculous jokes uh, from my econometrics professor in undergrad. And so I try to infuse that. I did end up going back to teach um, and we can talk about that if you want, but I try to infuse some comedy there. It doesn't always work. And <laughs> in comedy, I've tried to say, well, can I talk about data science, political science in my sets? And the answer is not really. <laughs> if you're talking to a drunk Friday night crowd, <laughs> right. maybe if it's the Tuesday 8 p.m. show, you can get away with it. Right. You need the right audience for that. Right. And right before the pandemic hit, I was doing a show at a theater called Caveat in the Lower East Side of New York City, which is all about making entertainment smarter. And so it's uh, run by someone named Ben Lilly, who's a physics PhD, was formerly at um, TED, and then founded his own podcast called The Story Collider, which is all about stories about science. He built this theater along with co-founder Kate Downey and others that's all about bringing scientists and artists together. And so when they opened, I was like, well, this is where I'm gonna live. And I was doing a monthly show there where I was talking about my favorite political and data science ideas in a funny way, kind of like what you saw in the Wharton conference. But then I would end it with a circus act that summarized the main points from the talk. And these things were sometimes a mess. They always killed me to put together, but they were really fun. And I was finally using my whole self in a show. And I and, would posit that the audience yeah. probably in understood it and remembered it differently because yeah. you presented it using so many modalities, not to yeah. mention the novelty yeah. of a data science genius doing acrobatics to entertain you. Well, I still balk at the genius part. So, and even just to be very candid about all of this is even when you said, oh, it was so refreshing to have this simple approach to data science, going into preparing that, I was thinking, all these people know all this stuff. I'm going to bore everyone out of their minds. This is too basic. You know, my, my imposter or whatever you want to call it is, is alive and well. But, <laughs> but I do feel very confident, or at least I feel better that my world, my contribution, I think, to data science and political science is not going to be cutting edge research in the latest methods because I just don't have the focus. But what I really have loved is trying to get people who are not excited about data science or social science excited about those fields. And finding out that comedy and circus could help me do that was very liberating and also really helps me feel better about how I spent the last 15 years of my life. <laughs> <laughs> Look, translation and communication yeah. is its own essential function. We need yeah. more people who can do it well. Yeah. Um, and for those of you who just tuned in, you're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm Laura Zarrow talking with Andrea Jones-Roy, director of the NYU Center, undergraduate program at the NYU Center for Data Science and associate professor, stand-up comedian, circus performer, and honorably delightful guest. So Andrea, I want to switch gears for a second because there's another dimension of what you do that I'm really curious about because it defies um, the reality that so many of us live with. Okay. Um, in the academic world, um, even when we think about it from afar, it's all books and men in ties and conservative. It's, it like defines conservative in so many ways, no matter how many radical thoughts get cooked up in an academic setting. And in the circus arts, particularly trapeze, um, 
and the way that you're performing, it's very adult, it's very sexual, and you present yourself in, on your own website in the fullness of who you are as a person, which includes being an, and quite literally buttoned up academic. When you dress for work, you yeah. are all Oxford shirt, yeah. loose fitting <laughs> jeans. You are as preppy as they come. Yeah. And then I just in need your, to tweed elbow pads or whatever. Yes, yeah. but, but it's not at all about you. You could be a man in those clothes. It would be perfectly normal to a lot of people. Yeah. And then in your trapeze work, you're highly sexualized in really compelling ways. And it's so, we never get to see women be both of those things and be taken seriously. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about how you've come to make the decision that you're going to do that and have you paid a price for it? How do you navigate it? Because sure. um, I feel like this is one of the most important ways that you are a role model for many people. Well, thank you for saying that. I I mean, it might all come crashing down, in which case uh, now we all know not to do that. But so, so far, <laughs> we're hanging in there. Um, but it, it is a constant question I do have is, should I hide this side of my life? And Honestly, that experience we talked about at the top of the show at, from Carnegie Mellon, where the stress of hiding what I was doing, and that was not sexual, it was not a nightclub, it was very, you know, going to yoga class at, at the Y kind of stuff. And, and when I got to Shanghai and decided to do this uh, nightclub, I made a conscious decision that I was not going to hide it. I wasn't going to tell people it's unprofessional and inappropriate to announce to my colleagues what I was doing. But I was said, I'm, you know, I have a Googleable name and my Instagram is my last name. And so I said, you know what, if they find it, then so be it. And that'll be that. And part of that is I was coming from a place of some privilege because I didn't have a family to support. I didn't have student loans that I needed to pay back. And I was in China and it was all kind of taken care of. And if I got fired, I didn't care that much because I was kind of on the fence about academia in the first place. So I was able to take that risk for a number of reasons, but I also just felt so strongly that I didn't want to sneak around. And I will say when I interviewed for NYU Shanghai, I interviewed Joanna with Joanna Whaley Cohen, who ended up being um, the provost of NYU Shanghai. And she interviewed me and she said, well, why are you even in New York? And I was like, well, and I had a moment where I could lie or tell her the truth. And I said, actually, I'm here for a trapeze workshop. And she said, that's cool. And then we moved on. And so even then, so it's a good gauge if I'm like dealing with an ally. Right. So I was like, let's just see. And so I didn't advertise it, but I didn't hide it. And eventually the word got out and my colleagues found out and everyone was very supportive. And I think that's a sign of working with great people. And I feel very fortunate about that. When I moved to the the US, I left my academic job. I continued to do circus performance in that style because I was very comfortable in that style. And for those who haven't seen my website, it's a lot of electrical tape instead of clothing. And I like it because it's very kind of androgynous and weird and sort of like a mime, but not really. And honestly, performing trapeze topless is so much better than shirts because you're upside down. It's Men have it good, right? I really enjoyed <laughs> it for a lot of reasons. And I liked being these sort of odd, almost non-human characters. Um, but when I got to New York, I had no job and I was looking for jobs. I wasn't sure if consulting was what I would do, but I worked at an education startup. I worked at 538 for a year and a half as a as a political journalist, data journalist. Not for me. It turns out I had to be trying to be funny. Anyway, 538 is many things. It's not a funny website. Right. So that wasn't great. But <laughs> but I was very worried the whole time that people would see my either my Instagram or my website and not hire me. 
And again, I was fortunate because I had some savings from China, so it was okay. But I basically made the same choice where I said, look, I want to work for people and with people who get it, who celebrate what I'm doing and love what I'm doing. And I would want to work with people who, like you, have other passions and interests and artistic backgrounds and so forth. So again, I've been very lucky because I had some bargaining power on my side, but I've been able to use it as a screening mechanism for who I work with. And basically it's a really great sign. So I have, I have some consultants and I never advertise that out of the gates, but at right. the end of my very first consulting project ever, someone turned to me and said, you know, we looked you up and we saw your Instagram and we think that's really cool. And if you could do all this work you did for us and do that in your spare time, you would be awesome at working at this company. And I was like, cool. Like these are my people. And every time a client says something to me like that, or you or someone at a conference says, I saw this, I love it. I know I'm in, you know, great company basically. So I can't tell you the counterfactual. Who knows, maybe I'd be president <laughs> if I didn't have these racy pictures on the internet. Probably not, right? No, but it seems like A, this is essential to your being your own whole self and being yeah. happy and engaging yeah. with your own life the way that you want to. Also, yeah. you're bringing up language that it's so exciting to hear it in a different context. You referred to these people as allies. <laughs> recognizing that these are multiple dimensions of your identity. We yeah. talk about this all the time when it comes to race, gender, sexuality, but these are also important dimensions of what makes you, you. And it sounds like you may not be taking the straight and narrow path to, on a tenure track, you know, on a tenure track role, but at the same time, you're doing all of these things that are essential to who you are and they are, reinforcing and expanding the ways that you're special and you make unique contributions. Like it shouldn't be this hard to be you. I got to play that back when I'm, you know, lying on the kitchen floor feeling sorry for myself. So, so thank you for that. I will say I'm interested that you, you noted the word ally because the minute I said it, I thought, ah, maybe that word should be reserved for race and gender and sexual orientation, et cetera, et cetera. But you know, you, th that is what I mean. You know, someone who's who who gets it, who supports you or or does the same or whatever, you know, so. without I don't want to at all diminish right. how important it is and how hard it is to truly emerge as an ally around those things right. that fundamentally, you know, have to change in our world. Right. At the same time, it's a way of thinking that I think we actually do need to harness and apply in a range of settings so that we can understand what it means to accept other people in their fullness. Yes, yes, 100%. And I, so, I you know, I hope to impart that in. So, I mean, part of my choice here is for my students, because I have so many students. I mean, this is, I think about myself for first, so not to make me, me seem super selfless. I should think about my students first, but I think about my needs and then I think about the students. But with my students, I, I made, when I made the choice to keep my name, because a lot of circus performers who have day jobs have stage names and so on. But um, with my students, I was like, I know a lot of students who also secretly love the violin or always wanted to do this or actually really love whatever and have confided in me that they got a bit of inspiration to do that as well as their professional sounding thing. So well, I've felt good. Andrew, you have given me extraordinary inspiration, <laughs> yeah. not to mention this has just been such a treat. So thank you for joining us. If people want to learn more, where do they find you? Well, they can see all these pictures you've been talking about on my website, jonesroy.com, J-O-N-E-S-R-O-O-Y. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram at, at jonesroy.
Again, thank you for joining us and thank you everyone for listening. If you have a question about anything you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. New episodes of Women at Work premiere on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern and our whole back catalog, all seven years of our shows with these amazing people available 24-7 via podcast. Search on Women at Work and Laura Zara wherever you get yours. Many thanks as always to my beloved producer, Patty Hall, my sound engineer, Chris Tukes. I'm Laura Zara and you've been listening to Women at Work on Sirius XM's business radio powered by the Wharton School. Have a great week, everybody, and explore your passion. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 